golf on its face is not the most welcoming game. We need to provide opportunities for people to feel comfortable at the golf course, to ask questions, to learn, and to meet new people. And I think that's a big part of what we're trying to do at National Links Trust. This is episode one of the National Links Trust podcast, telling the stories, sharing the history, and emphasizing the importance of municipal golf in the diverse communities in which they reside. I'm Michael Kornheiser with Claude Jennings. For more information on all that National Links Trust is doing to protect and promote affordable and engaging municipal golf courses that will positively impact local communities across the U.S., check out nationallinkstrust.com. Well, it's only fitting that we're joined by the National Links Trust Executive Director, Sinclair Eady, considering this is the first episode. And I know you've been doing a lot of interviews. You've been making uh, the rounds through that golf podcast space. I sort of wanted to go back to the beginning, and we're sort of hoping you might tell us how you got into the game of golf. Well, when I started the game, there weren't a lot of junior programs, and there weren't a lot of established golf programs for young people to get involved. And my story is actually, I think, interesting because I was watching the 1986 Masters as a junior and I had never played golf before, but I watched the entire tournament and watched Jack Nicholas win a six-screen jacket. And after the tournament was over, I just was convinced that golf was the game for me. I needed to find a way to play. I needed to get clubs. I needed to get to the golf course. So I went out and bought a bought a U-set, never had any lessons, never done clubs before. I just went out and bought a set of clubs and went to Mount Pleasant Golf Course, which was near my home in Northeast Baltimore. And I I walked in, you know, ha- having never played the game, and I asked the guy in the pro shop, could I play golf? And I thought maybe he would say, no, you're a beginner, you know, you really can't play. But, you know, he looked at my equipment, looked at me and said, can you keep up with the group in front of you? And I said, yeah, I can do that. So that was my first round of golf ever at Mount Pleasant Golf Course. I think I only played 16 holes that day, but all I remember is that I love the game and I was totally hooked. And I've been playing the game ever since. So I learned the game on public golf courses. And so this project with NLT is very special to me. You know, that's interesting. What specifically, if you remember, was it about the 86 Masters that just captured you as someone who never played the game and you're watching it and then just what hooked you? Obviously, I think everyone has heard of Jack Nicholas, but the fact that, you know, he sort of stormed back in the in the final round and it wasn't all clear that he was going to win, but he had a plan and he was so focused in that round. You know, you could see the focus on his face and you knew he was going to win that tournament. And I just thought, that's so exciting. This is a guy who no one expected to win the 86 Masters, but he had a game plan and he executed and he did it in a fashion that, you know, befits a, a Masters champion. And I just thought that was so cool that no one expected Jack Nichols at his age to win the Masters. But after that, you know, golf was in my blood and I was totally hooked. It, it's amazing that you bring up the 86 Masters because, you know, if I, if I date myself, I had a similar experience with the 1997 Masters in terms of just seeing Tiger play these positions on that second nine after you think about the first nine holes on Thursday and just being totally in awe as to how it didn't look like golf looked in my mind's eye as I was seeing him go through that. And it's, it's pretty amazing that you have such strong recollections of what that Sunday charge looked like. It's very clear to me because that that's when golf sort of crystallized for me that, you know, this is a sport that's played by the rules, that's played on great stages, but it's really about the game of golf. And it's a game that we all play, whether it's at Augusta National or Langston or Rock Creek. It's really essentially the same game, individual golfers against the golf course and your, and your fellow competitors. And that's just something that always appealed to me, whether it's at Mount Pleasant or it's at Langston or East Potomac, it's a game that we all play and that we can all enjoy no matter what level we're at. So speaking of the game of golf, what does municipal golf mean to you? 
Well, for me, municipal golf was was everything. That's where that's where I learned to play the game. As a youngster getting into the game, I didn't I didn't have access to country clubs or or some of the some of the more prestigious courses in the area. I played the public golf courses. As I said, Mount Pleasant, Baltimore was very near my home, but I also played the other public golf courses in Baltimore and DC. And that's where I learned the game. That's where I met other uh, junior golfers who were competitive as well. Those are my best memories of my early days in the game, playing junior golf, playing in junior golf tournaments, whether it's at Mount Pleasant in Baltimore or whether it's at Langston in D.C. To me, that's where most of the competitive junior action was at that time. And so that's what I enjoyed the most. Hmm, that's interesting. So is that what brought you to uh, National Links Trust? I've been involved with the game of golf for, for a number of years now as a volunteer. I don't just play the game as a, as a recreational golfer. I've volunteered my time to another to a number of golf organizations in Maryland and nationally. In Maryland, I'm very involved with the Maryland State Golf Association, which also covers the District of Columbia. And I'm also involved with the Middle Atlantic Golf Association. So I work very closely with the state and regional golf associations in this area as a volunteer and as a board member. And nationally, I'm involved with the USGA as a committee member, and I've been doing that for several years now. And also, I work very closely with the Western Golf Association, which sponsors the Evan Scholars Program. So I've been involved with the game of golf as a volunteer, as a player. And my goal as a volunteer in the game is to bring the game to non-traditional audiences, to people for whom golf is not a natural game. Most of my activities have been to broaden the exposure and the appeal of golf to a much broader audience. And so everything I've done as a volunteer has been to promote the game of golf. It's been interesting to, to track just with the golf boom uh, that the pandemic has brought to all these courses, but but especially so to the three courses here in Washington, D.C. And there's been so much positive attention from traditional and also non-traditional, more social media on the National Links Trust and their unlikely path. Has there been any early pushback? There's been so many successes, but has there been any early pushback? Michael, I wouldn't say there's there's been any pushback. I think the response to our plan for the golf courses has been overwhelmingly positive. You know, there are always naysayers who wouldn't agree with any project, but I would say for the most part, the golfers who play the DC golf courses, the neighborhoods and community associations that abut these golf courses, the response we've gotten has been overwhelmingly positive. You talked about your mission to expose people who aren't familiar with the game and didn't have access to the game. A lot of these courses are in communities with people who are just like that, who hadn't had access to the game, but they live in close proximity to a lot of these municipal courses. Where have you found was the disconnect between the access and the exposure when there's a course, you know, in your community? And then how do you bridge that gap? I think it's intimidating. Claude, I go back to my own experience just getting into the game. And what I did was I just went to the golf course and asked if I could play. I think that there's a barrier for many people and an intimidation factor for many folks to just go to the golf course and ask for guidance in in how to get into the game and how to learn the game. It's not so much a physical barrier as as much as it's a cultural and just a sports barrier, a skill barrier to the game. Golf is a game that we see on television and with professionals that's played at a very high level and it's played at a skilled level. That's an intimidation factor. So we see that. And I think the average golfer looks at those golfers who are skilled and say, well, I don't have that skill level. Just by going to the golf course, would they accept someone like me, who's not a professional, who doesn't have great golf clubs, who doesn't have great equipment, who's never played the game? What place do I have at a public golf course? That's the intimidation factor that I think exists. And I think that's the opportunity to bring people into the game by showing that it's it's inclusive, it can be welcoming, and that it is it is a game of skill. And it's but it's not a game of skill which you learn overnight. It's a game of lifetime, which I've been told that, and I truly believe that just from my experience in the game. It's a game 
that you continue to learn over a period of time. And so it's not just about knowing everything the first time you step on the golf course. It's about being comfortable enough to learn the game, to learn from others, and more importantly, to just enjoy the game for the recreation that, that it provides. And so you know, if we can convey that message, the recreation piece, the fact that anyone can enjoy the game, that you don't have to be skilled or you don't have to be a professional, you know, to be comfortable at the golf course. I think that's the biggest message that we can bring to golfers who haven't traditionally been part of the golf scene. It's a great reminder that golf is a hard game and there is so much coded behavior that we all display, even just walking from the parking lot. How do we put our shoes on? How do we check in in the pro shop? How do we maneuver our way to the first tee and understand how we position ourselves on the course. And so it's a great reminder for us as golfers, just the small sort of moments we can take to make that game more inclusive. We forget it's so hard to walk up to the putting green and know how to just integrate yourself into the routine. Am I allowed to putt on this hole? What sort of, uh, what sort of break in do I have to get here? Michael brings up such a great point because even when going the game, it goes beyond uh, reaching out to someone in your neighborhood who may have not played before, a family member or friend, say, hey, why don't you try this game? That's one aspect. But it's also, you know, when I'm at the golf course and I see someone who's obviously a beginner, make them feel comfortable. There was a guy the other day I was at, I was at Paint Branch in, in Greenbelt, Maryland, and he was at the, the uh, driving range ball dispenser and he didn't know you know, how to tag into the, hit the receipt, the numbers on the receipts and, and get the code. I said, Hey man, here's how you do it. Make sure you, he had the bucket in his hand. Hey, before you do that, put the bucket down on the here. Cause the balls are going to come out fast, man. We've and, all seen the bucket tip over. <laughs> we've all seen it. And so I did that, but, it, but that helps people feel comfortable because they, they, they don't, may not know what to do as golfers. If I want to grow the game, if I notice that or see it, help somebody feel comfortable. For sure. What I, what I would say is that when I was coming along early in the game, I think I had a lot of great mentors and folks who, who wanted to see me get into the game. And so they would they would give me advice about playing the game, how to conduct yourself at the golf course, the things you do and the things you don't do. Um, and I was very grateful for that. And I remember those I remember those folks who took me under their wing. Uh, to this day. But we have to remember that golf on its face is not the most welcoming game. We need to provide opportunities for people to feel comfortable at the golf course, to ask questions, to learn, and to meet new people. And I think that's a big part of what we're trying to do at National Links Trust. And to go back to your path to the National Links Trust, as, as you described some of the other organizations that you've been working with and for, particularly with ones that focus on those youth initiatives, it starts early as to how we can bring them in so they can enjoy the mentorship, the life skills, the educational opportunities that are available through the game of golf, not just teeing it up in the ground and trying to see how many strokes we can get the ball into the cup. So now you're, you're tasked with the running of a nonprofit uh, and you have the opportunity to create change at the community level as well. This is all very lofty, but for you, what does success look like? How does, how does success look in the immediate now versus down the future? If you could choose a course, a day, an event, a moment, what would that look like? I think there are two things. I think we're in the middle of a process. The process is National Links Trust has a 50-year lease to operate these three golf courses. We think there's tremendous opportunity in that. A big part of our mission and a big part of our goal is providing well-conditioned golf courses that are architecturally significant and provide opportunities for the general golfing public to enjoy a well-conditioned golf course that's architecturally significant. That's in the DNA of National Links Trust. And the first part of your question is, we have three We have three golf courses. All three of the golf courses in D.C., from an architectural standpoint, are significant historically, both nationally and, and locally. Well-known, nationally known designers historic spaces in the district in the district of columbia there's a, just a tremendous opportunity there from a facility from a facility standpoint and so the first part of national links trust mission is to address many years of deferred maintenance at the three golf courses and 
it's not just to take these golf courses and make them better. We're transforming these facilities, whether it be driving ranges, whether it be putting putting courses, whether it be nine-hole par three courses. For example, at Rock Creek, we're changing the model and the thought of what a round of golf is. Traditionally, golfers think of a round of golf as 18 holes. We like to turn it around, so to speak, or just a bit and say, you know, let's make the driving range a welcoming place for new golfers to come into the game. And once they're, once they're comfortable in the driving range and shipping and putting, why is it necessary to play an 18-hole golf course when we know that short courses, par three courses, provide challenge, provide recreation, provide fun in a setting and in a time that's more compatible with most people's schedule? So we're changing the thought of what a round of golf looks like. And that's an important part about attracting new golfers to the game. The fact that golf is not just an 18-hole game, but it's something we can enjoy on a nine-hole basis, on a four- or five-hole basis, and it's still meaningful. We're still getting recreation. We're still competing in the game of golf. And so, you know, we're changing the meaning and what a round of golf is for the for the average golfer. And that, again, that is a big part of our mission at NLT as well. Because of the pandemic, my wife played more golf last year, you know, than she's ever played in her entire life because she just wanted to kind of get outside and walk with me and our, and, and our son. And you're 100% right. I can't, I can't pay her to play 18 holes. But, you know, there's the executive nine at Needwood, uh, East Potomac. There's all these other places where we can go and play a quick nine. And she's down with that. But that, you know, when you try to change things, you know, sometimes changes come with challenges. Are there any kind of challenges you, you know, foresee with this, you know, changing the way we define a round of golf? No, because I think we all know that there are various entryways into the game. Some people, um, you know, have grown up in the game and have received attention and instruction that has brought them to brought them to a higher level. But that's not the way the average golfer comes into the game. So you might want to think of this as moving into the game in stages. You know, we have curiosity about the game. And so we're, so we're learning. And then we we move forward and we start to engage with fellow golfers and we and we find our way to the golf course. And finding your way to the golf course is not just about finding your way to the first to the first tee. It may be your start may be the driving range. Or even before that, it may be the putting green. You know, those are all important entry points into the game into the game as well. I, I mean I think we all aspire to hit to the to hit the first tee at some point. But for the average golfer, for the golfer who has not been entrenched in the game, you know, your entry point is not going to be playing an 18-hole round. It's going to be hitting a bucket or two of balls at the range. It's going to be chipping and putting at the practice screen. It's going to be playing those nine-hole executive and par three-length golf courses. And really, it's not its not a question of shorter course versus longer course. It's a matter of being comfortable with the game and moving moving up you know, the skill level and stages. And that's, and that's what we think providing facilities that can address all of those stages of the golfer. We feel that that's an important part of our mission. One of the areas that I think is very important, Claude, is the idea of getting more women involved again. You talk about your wife and the fact that, you know, an 18 hole round might not be the best thing for, for her, but, you know, a nine hole round or a, or a practice round or the driving ring might be might be a good alternative. We would love to see more participation by women in the game. And, you know, I think the game of golf is traditionally seen, has been seen as a man's game. And we like to, we'd like to change that. We want to be more welcoming uh, to women. We think that's important. We think that's important for families. We think that's important for the game, for the game of golf. And so when we talk about 
non-traditional golfers or golfers who don't have a regular affinity for the game, I think we really want to emphasize not only do we want to get young people and juniors more involved with the game, but we also want to attract women to the game because what we found is that they are enthusiastic golfers. And in some cases, once they once they get hooked on golf, they are more enthusiastic than their, than their male counterparts. So we think that's an exciting point for the game. I mean, we think that's an exciting potential for the game and something we want to embrace at our properties as well. I love that questioning what it means to have a golf experience, not just a round of golf, uh, is is so entrenched in the mission. And, and I think right now you look at the idea of cost, the cost of money, the cost of time. I have two young boys at home, and the idea of an 18-hole round is not always possible, though I am an avid golfer, and, and that's part of our family's fabric. But you can bring my boys out to a putting course, and they're going to run around on the fridge, and they're going to be in, invested. And, and you take a look at the pedigree that these courses have, which a lot of local golfers did not know about until this plan to the National Links Trust was really coming about because it wasn't highlighted. And so you look at this idea of the 50-year of the lease and you have the time and space to address uh, some of these potential entry points into the game. And I think that's what's so exciting. Mike, we actually bring up a good point as well, the idea of cost being a barrier to the game. Uh, NLT is committed to rehabilitate and renovate the three golf courses in D.C., but we've committed to do that in a, in a fiscally responsible manner in such a way that we're not, we're not really passing on the cost of these um, renovations to the um, average golfer who uses the golf courses. You know, we have ambitious plans for all three golf courses, Rock Creek, Langston, and East Potomac. But our goal at the end of the day, when, when those renovations are done, is that the cost of a round at those courses will not significantly increase. You can look at projects around the country, which you both are probably familiar with, the Beth Pages, the Torrey Pines of the world. And they're great golf courses, but they've done so in a way that's not really sustainable from a financial standpoint for most golfers. Our goal is to renovate the golf courses in D.C. and do it in such a way that they remain affordable for the average golfer. That's comforting to hear. And, and you think about why so many golfers might have pushed back on the idea of flexible routings or, you know, short rounds because they looked at the receipt and, and there was an idea of what does 18 holes plus a cart or plus a bucket of balls at the range cost. And I'm, I'm viewing everything as I'm breaking it down shot by shot by shot, rather than just what does it mean to get out, say, and experience that five hole walk, because that's what I have right now, or that's what the course offers me after a long day. That's true, Michael. And a, and a word again about the pandemic, which has obviously been very awful, um, but it's really created a tremendous opportunity, especially with the D.C. golf courses. We've seen unprecedented levels of participation um, from golfers at all three golf courses and also uh, at the driving ranges at Langston and East Potomac. Um, for various reasons, uh, being outside has been a, a preferred way for folks to avoid close contact and to, and to socially distance. And so the D.C. courses have seen an uptick and a surge in the level of play this spring and going back into last spring uh, when the pand when the pandemic re really began. You know, if there's a silver lining to the pandemic, it's that people have felt very comfortable with the fact that the golf course has been a refuge from the pandemic and having to spend their times in close quarters. Yeah. And as we've got the, um, you know, the, the, the rental projects going on, uh, where are we now in that process? You were talking about it being a process. Where are we in the process and, and, and what's next? What's next is we are meeting with the National Park Service and their respective uh, departments, which govern and oversee the parks where the golf courses um, reside. For example, today uh, we were at Rock Creek with 
NPS staff and the Rock Creek staff going over our proposed changes to the golf course, which include a new driving range, a nine-hole par three course, as well as a, a nine-hole regulation golf course. And so we wanted to show the National Park Service where we would put new features, um, where existing features would stay the same, and just to give them a sense of, of what of what our vision of, of the golf course and the entire facility looks like for Rock Creek. So we're doing that. We're in the process of doing that with both Rock Creek and Langston. And I, I would say, for the most part, the National Park Service and their staffs have been very supportive of everything that we've proposed. Um, that being said, we also have to get approval for the changes that we've proposed as well. Thus far, we haven't seen any roadblocks, um, but we're in the permitting and approval process for both Langston and Rock Creek. We don't have to make a lot of changes in terms of Rock Creek and Langston are, are great facilities. They have great shoulders. They have great bones. We're not reinventing the wheel at either facility. We're really just changing the way golfers use both of those facilities. And so, you know, from an architecture standpoint, we're not really blowing up the golf course and doing so- and doing something different. We're really just reimagining the way the courses were historically um, situated on the property in a way that lets us bring in different elements, whether it's a new driving range at Rock Creek, which we today, you know, it was very clear to everyone who was there what our vision was for the driving range at Rock Creek and where it goes, what it's going to look like, how it starts, how it finishes, um, where golfers will go when they when they arrive to the golf course. You know, when you're standing on the land, you realize that you're not changing the nature of the land. Um, you're really just changing the elements that that already exists there. So for example, the driving range, which is an important part of what we're doing at Rock Creek, we're going to be building a new building a new clubhouse or renovating the existing clubhouse, but the range itself is there. We're not going to have to recreate the wheel in terms of what the range is going to look like at Rock Creek. It's already there. It's already situated on the land and it works for the plans that we have. So we view ourselves very much as stewards as opposed to engineers when it comes to these golf courses. They're all situated on great pieces of land. And we're just moving the puzzle pieces around to make these facilities more friendly for a larger group of golfers, whether they play a nine-hole round, an 18-hole round, or just use the driving range. So you have a great understanding of these facilities. You have a, you have a great recollection of the movement of the land, of the routing of these courses. So just to have a little bit of fun. What's your favorite spot? on one of these three facilities. And I'll, I'll end with the, with the, with your favorite item from the East Potomac Grill. I would say it's the holes that, that run along the Anacostia River at Langston and that border Kingman Lake. There's not one hole in particular, but the holes that run, that run along the lake, they are spectacular. Over the years, you've had trees grow, you've had vegetation grow along the, along the shoreline. Um, but if you kind of, if you kind of wiped it away or pushed it away, what you realize is that if these holes were on any other course along a river anywhere around the country, you know, they would be called old world, spectacular, great views. We have those views at Langston and Washington the D.C. So our goal at National Links Trust is to open those views up uh, and to give golfers uh, a full appreciation of not just the land that the golf course occupies, but the features like the Anacostia River that really make that property special. So I would say my favorite holes are the holes along the Anacostia River at Langston. The other question is way beyond way beyond my pay grade, <laughs> but I love the half smoke at the at the East Potomac Grill. I don't think it can be beat. That's what that's what I'm going to have if I'm there. And uh, you know, there are obviously other things on the menu, but the half smoke is my favorite. I was going to say in my younger days it was the bacon cheeseburger. So as I've gotten older, it's probably the BLT because you can't. You cannot beat that spot for a quick bite, but uh, for sure, 
you know, as you, as you talk about the way these courses and these holes interact with the land, I'm thinking back to one of my first memories at East Potomac, which was, you know, my, my mom would drop me off and I'd make the walk from the parking lot to pick up, uh, you know, tokens to go to the range. And there used to be the, the large front putting green. And as, as I think to, you know, my strong connections to, to these facilities, I think of that front putting green that was, you know, the biggest thing that I'd ever seen on a golf course and trying to figure out where I fit in with these men. Cause it was, it was, you know, in introducing my myself into the world of adult golfers and trying to see where I fit fit in there. But uh, recently for me, it's I, I still coach primarily at East Potomac, but nothing for me beats a late you know, late fall afternoon when you're sort of by yourself in the back corner on the white course uh, and you're standing on number seven green as you're trying to see kids figure out angles into this short par four, how to manage that modified split level and just watching the way that the golf course actually is fitting into this beautiful view of the waterfront. You see the the cyclists making the turn right there. That's great that you share those memories. I think those stories and those memories are told at all three golf courses. And I think that's the great thing. We have three unique facilities. We have Rock Creek, which is in a wonderful parkland setting, great natural features, but really but really an asset that's not utilized by golfers to the extent it could be in the DC area. And then we have then we have historic Langston, where African Americans have traditionally been welcome and have found a home in the game of golf. And seeing professional and amateur tournaments played at Langston, a very special facility, a very special golf course. And then of course East Potomac, which sits in the shadow of the Washington Washington Monument, sits on a point in the Potomac River um, on all, with the Potomac River on all sides, it, it's just a spectacular location for golf. We are blessed that each course that National Links Trust manages is special, special in its own way, special in terms of geography, special in terms of culture, special in terms of the regulars that play there on a, on a, on a day-to-day basis. Um, we're excited about all three properties and the potential. As I reflect back on Sinclair's words and consider his experience in golf and what the National Links Trust is working towards, I think about the active nature of this work and how we are all charged to get involved. It's not just about making the golf courses better. The design, conditioning, layout flow with the chance for inclusion is almost a bonus add-on, that that sort of Twilight Nine. It's about making the entire experience more inclusive, even changing the way we define the very golf experience and forcing all of us golfers to ask ourselves how we are making the game more inclusive as well. And it could be small things, undressing the dress code, joining up groups, playing across ability, striking up that conversation on the putting green, saying thank you to a member of the grounds crew. Yes, improvements to the facilities are part of this and what we all can enjoy, maybe most readily, but it's more about how we instill the systems and practices to make the game more accessible to the low single-digit handicap, the true novice, families, and at its basic level, to communities that have not felt welcomed, whether by time, access, price, ability, or even the culturally embedded practices. Absolutely, Michael. Very well said. And the thing that stood out to me the most, just as you had mentioned it, I almost forgot how intimidating the golf experience can be for beginners. I mean, I remember showing up not knowing where to go, not even knowing what to wear, but having some guys around me who was able to coach me through that. And it just keeps me in the mindset that as I see young kids or as I see someone who is, you know, um, obviously a beginner and may not know what to do or where to go. Growing the game uh, is something that, yeah, on a larger scale, golf is trying to do, but it's not something that, quote unquote, they do. It's something that we do. We can help grow the game. And I think breaking down that barrier and that intimidation factor uh, is one way that we, as you know, speaking for myself as, you know, just kind of the weekday, weekend ball beater around courses here in the DMV and wherever I, 
you know, kind of travel. That's one thing that I can do to help grow the game as well. All right, guys. Episode number one is in the books. Yes, sir. Reason to celebrate. We should feel happy about that, Michael. Hope everyone enjoyed the show. Uh, for more information on this show and all the work that National Links Trust is doing, check out nationallinkstrust.com. I'm Michael Kornheiser. He's Claude Jennings. Until next time, thanks for listening to the National Links Trust podcast. Oh,